0: and as righteous as Christ is and we thank you Lord that that he is was crucified for our sins and raised again for our justification and now he sits on he stands on the right hand of on your right hand that he and reigns until all things are to be put under his feet and we thank you Lord for all of that help us to hear your word help us to understand your message Help us to glorify you in what we do, and we ask you this for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is always good to be together. It is always good to worship, and sometimes it is not easy. Not easy. Matter of fact, I would suggest that worshiping on the Lord's Day is probably the most difficult experience of the practicing Christian. We can do anything else. We can prepare for a vacation that'll cost us a year's salary. We can prepare for a get together. We can do all sorts of things. We can face death and disaster and disease. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to separating just a couple of hours in the beginning of our week, there is a supernatural, overwhelming, just engulfing of frustration, inter-dialogue, physical fatigue, irritating children, irritating husbands, irritating wives, flat tires, cold weather. Back hurts, eye hurts, butt hurts, head hurts, heart hurts, I'm hurt. You know, whatever it might be that could cause us to go, let's just not go assemble today. It happens. And those same things are probably more manifold on Monday morning, and then Monday morning we get up and go, oh, I've got to go to work, and we just do it. We just do it. And it's good and it's bad and it's good. Let me tell you why it's good. It's good because in that sense is that we know we're not bound to some law of death. That if we skip the assembly, God is not going, "Uh -uh -uh. I'm going to get you now. You thought you had a flat tire last night. Watch this. That's not how the Lord works. It's bad also in a sense because it's exactly what we need. We need to be under the teaching of the word, we need to be together, we are blessed in it, so it's bad when we skip it, but it's also good. It's also good because we know that that we are not under condemnation. And that what we do or what we don't do, how hard we work or how lazy we are, how spiritually focused and vibrant we might be or we feel that maybe we don't even believe anymore, we are still in the hand of Christ. Because the efficacy, in other words, the, the, re, the reality of the power of Christ to save us and to keep us is not dependent upon us in any way, in any fashion. Nor is it dependent upon anything that God does in us in any way that manifests in any permanence. Let me say that in an easier way. We don't put our hope in what God is doing in us. We put our hope in what God has done for us. And what God has accomplished for us. And then we do hope in what God is going to do in and through us, but it is not our tether to our eternal life. It is not our tether to our joy. It is not our tether to our hope. And that is why you hear often what can easily become platitudes Christ is all. We like to sing the songs, right? He will hold me fast. We just sang that song. We sang it again. Last, we sang it last week as well. And we could sing it every week from now on because it is, a, it, is a, it is an anthem of the believer. We are weak and needy and broken and desperate. Jesus Christ did not come to the earth to help, teach, save, or approach those who did not need him. He did not come to the earth and engage with the spiritual elites as friends. He did not look over Jerusalem and give likes to the theological heroes. He did not speak good of those who lived in absolute piety. He was a friend of sinners. Of which, as Paul would say, I am the foremost. And though we are all sinners, equally in the sense of God's justice, deserving of all wrath, I don't believe that our sin has been as great as Paul's. Who knew the truth, who knew the word, Who lived a life that none of us could even fathom of purity. But yet called all of that trash for the priceless gain of knowing Christ. Because it takes a divine work of God in the hearts of his people for us to see that. For us to see him and and sometimes not in a real intelligible way just go I'm just trusting Him. I'm just just trusting Him. So this morning, as it is the day that we as a culture, mostly around the world, not everywhere, but mostly around the world, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, this is a day that very few people would skip. You see? This is is one of those things that that, that we can see um, congregations people walking in who have been coming for years going, who are those people? Who are these people? Because there's an emphasis on this, on this particular weekend, which is you know, based on lunar structure, not dates, that the evangelical world and the orthodox world and the Roman world and, and, and everybody else and even the cults, All every iteration, they focus on this day and give it great significance, and I'm I'm fine with that. But in doing so, it impresses upon the world at large that this is an important time. I should come today, and then oftentimes we end up seeing the preaching on. Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. There's nothing wrong with celebrating even the paganistic ideologies of Easter. You want candy and cake and eggs and whatever. Colossians gives us that liberty. No more will I allow you to be scared of candy. Except for dentist time, you know. I don't want you to be scared of 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 a of a pink shirt or a dress. Do what you want to do. Because Jesus was resurrected last week and he'll be resurrected next week. And every Lord's day that we assemble, we take the table in remembrance of the death of Jesus Christ. Which requires us then to understand the resurrection of Christ. So for the first time in historical ministry, I am going to preach out of 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter. Not because it's the theme, it's just that Psalm 40, I'm going to get into some Christological things in two weeks. And I really just want to emphasize this stuff anyway. And I'm thinking, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I don't know what year it was, but I preached John 3 one time on Christmas Day some years ago. And it wasn't very well received with some. Because it was packed in here. And some even got up and left. This is not a Christmas message. No, it's not. John 3 is not a Christmas message. It's about being born again by the divine work of God. And this is a message about the resurrection. And the focus that I want to put on, go to First Corinthians chapter 15. This is, it's not only important because Paul says it is, it's important because it is the thematic centerpiece of the entire word of God and is the thematic pinnacle of life. I didn't want to be hyperbolic there, but that's the truth. The existence of all things culminate to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to wait, because of that resurrection, the second coming of Christ. Paul, chapter fifteen of First Corinthians, and I'm, I'm just gonna stop at verse 20, okay? I'm just gonna stop at verse 20. We don't have ten hours. Now, I would remind you, Paul says, brothers, sisters, siblings, of the gospel, of the good report. When I say good report from now, when I see gospel, I'm just going to start saying the good report because that's literally what it means. Literally. Gospel is a transliteration of some extremely elongated English that came from other places as well. So, of the good report of Jesus Christ that I preached, that I proclaimed, that I told you about. Okay, There's no significance in preaching, teaching, telling, speaking, signing, or whatever. He told them about it. Which you heard and received. You, you, you accepted it. You received it. In which you stand, by which you are being saved, present active tense. Because there's not a moment in time that you were saved in your understanding of the gospel. Uh, Your understanding of the gospel and the gospel in and of itself is the story of how you were saved at the cross of Christ. Does that make sense? And these are nuanced things that we're not going to go through today, but I just want to get them out there so that you hear what I am saying. Even though I don't have time to say everything, you know what I'm talking about. And that is if you hold fast to the Story, to the word, to the understanding that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You didn't really believe. You're just like, yeah, that sounds good. Yippee! You know. The decisionism of our world. Four, verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance, of all theological things in the entire body of Scripture, of first importance, what I also received from the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus by His divine power who overcame my will, who overcame my mind, and who overcame my body and took me for Himself. Was not my choice. God in His mercy and love arrested me from death, rescued me from darkness, Well, why is God in the business? I didn't want to Yes, you did. When you're made alive, you know that you didn't want to stay in darkness. Nobody in the darkness is going, I wish I could just get out of darkness. We love the darkness. See, that's John three. That's Christmas. The light has come to the world, but people don't come to the light because they love the darkness. And when they do come to the light, those who love the darkness, has clearly seen that their works as what they are, evil, Nicodemus, I'm talking about you, you pious, kind, loving, spiritual teacher of Israel. You're living in the dark, buddy. But then those who do come to the light do so, that it may be seen that their works have been carried out by God. See, redemption is carried out by God. Salvation is carried out by God. And it doesn't beg the question that everybody asks in the narratives of Scripture, especially in the book of Acts. What now? What what, what are we supposed to do? Believe that it's been done. Believe that he's accomplished the work. Believe. Rest. Lay down. Stop working. Quit running. Quit climbing. Quit digging. Quit burning. Quit throwing. Quit training. Sit down and be quiet. Be still and know that I am God. Of first importance, back to the scripture, for our, he died. Christ died. Physically in his life, died in his body for our sins. We don't have to read it. We don't have to be intelligent. We don't have to dig. We don't have to go, oh, our, now who are the ours? He's talking to the Corinthians, to the believers in Corinth written to them and for them, and then now by the sovereignty of God for us to read and to understand, for God has spoken through his apostle. And I'm going to show you that today in the context of the resurrection. In accordance with the, what, scriptures, Peter says it best, doesn't he? We did not come up with cleverly devised myths. We're not making up new things. We aren't working to create a narrative that fits the thousands of years of loose-leaf connection. We are not that good. We have not come up with our own idea. But we are just declaring that which was declared to us by God through the prophets. Time and time again through hell and high water. Through good and through bad. Through thickness and through thin. Through happy and through sadness. And we know now that it is all about Christ. We didn't see it, and our forefathers didn't see the perfection of it, but we see it now. And now, as we've trusted in the promises of God since the days of Adam, we trust in the promises of God fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Oh, man, isn't it much easier to know what's wrong with us? Isn't it much easier to know that there is a cure? Isn't it much easier to know what we just ate? Ignorance is bliss sometimes, but... In the context of the gospel, when it's revealed, it's overwhelmingly joyful. According to the scriptures, what is it that we learn, according to the scriptures, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4, that he was buried, he died. This is not a fake out. This is not a swooning. This is not something going on that, you know, some conspiracy. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures in accordance with what was written. By the prophets. And then after that resurrection, he appeared to Kepha, as we say in South Cephas. That's second cousin to Cletus. That's Peter. And then to the twelve. Which would include Matthias, not Judas Iscariot, right? Okay, so you know. It's always twelve. and When one died, they just replaced him. Then he appeared to more than 500 of our brothers at the same time, most of which are still alive this present day, though some have died, fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, Paul, his testimony, he appeared to me as one untimely born for I am the least of the apostles. And this is not self-deprecation and woe is me and Paul being a little whiner pot like James Tippins. He is being honest. That's the tame way of saying that, right? Unworthy to be called an apostle because I sinned in a way that few people ever have. I led the charge. I gave the go order. To stone Stephen for proclaiming the good story of the resurrected Christ. I gave the order to go into all the different cities in Asia and to snatch out men and women and children in the name of God Almighty of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and I pulled them out by their hair and I put them in cages and I put them to death because they would not renounce the risen Savior. This isn't Aesop, this is scripture. (laughs) I persecuted the church of God. See how much more interesting it is when I start giving the like flowering narratives that I just sort of make up? Oh my gosh, I'd make a little good movie there. I'd make a good series. And how even when we see movies about Scripture, we get chills when Jesus gets an attitude with the Pharisees. Oh, yeah, get on, Jesus. And when Jesus turns over to the tables, there's that, there's that. You know. Or goes in kung fu chopping and whipping with chains. Get them out of there, bunch of money changers, yeah! But he didn't get them then either, did he? He got them when he came back to life. And his job wasn't to get them anyway. It was to get us. You see the difference. Beloved, we have a tainted view of Jesus, even here amongst ourselves, because we love to play him out as the Marvel Man, and we think that the power of God is about shutting down the opposition. And the power of God is to defeat the enemies of Christ, and as we'll see today, the final enemy is death, not the loud-mouthed neighbor, or the theological, theological I said the theological the theological bird dogs. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the Church of God. His emphasis is not there. His emphasis is on verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me, His mercy, His loving kindness, His work, His intervention, His arresting, His power, His all that. This is what the grace of God means. God's grace is not this ethereal magic that He has and He goes pew, pew, pew. It's not something God puts out. It's who He is. And it's how he operates from the attitude of his own will and the counsel of his own disposition and his own understanding of who he is and his sovereign, powerful, providential rule over every molecule and the non-molecules that aren't. Now let that pop around in your brain for a couple of hours at four in the morning. And we can't even go to the antimatter attitude. I'm talking about ex nihilo, baby. Nothing. And when we think of nothing, we've made it something. And that's backwards. Moving right along. Coffee after service. Okay. Don't listen to me. But His grace, His mercy, His love, His power, His work, His desire, His will, His work toward me was not in vain. On the contrary. This is where we need to pay attention, church. We're not antinomian. Because an antinomian is just a legalist with less to do. And what that means is there are things for us to do. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I. See how James talks, right? Not this James, but the apostle. Let's not say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. that. There's no such thing as a self-made person Even the heathens and the pagans and the haters of God, God made them where they are. Side note. So that when they fall and they have nothing at the end of their days, everything that they built is just dust and dirt. And that hurts me. Because I have the ability to build a lot. But what is an idol worth? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. God working in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. It doesn't matter. See, Paul's not the pinnacle. He's not the main character. Christ is. Christ's role in teaching, he wasn't the main character. The Father was. And the Spirit, the paraclete, the one that comes aside that Jesus promises in John's Gospel... He wasn't the main character, Christ was. So now Christ is the main character. He was the main character all along. The glory of God revealed. Now verse 12 through 20, which is our text for this morning, 12. Now, let's see how I had to go back. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You see the illogical assumptions? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is worthless. It's a waste. And your faith is worthless. It's a waste. It's empty. That's what vain means. It's empty. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we said about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also, all those who have fallen asleep, means died, in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. There's a sermon there. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Oh, I have to do 21 through 22, 23. I won't talk about it, but it needs to be heard. For as by a man, Adam, came death, by a man, Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... And so also in Christ shall be made, all be made alive, but each to his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then he comes in the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I can keep going. Three simple things, and then 11 simple things I want you to see this morning. And I have a lot of cross reference scriptures, so I wrote them all down. So I didn't sound like a chipmunk running from a chicken truck. There's a false teaching happening in Corinth, there's a bunch of false teaching in Corinth. It's a bunch of false teaching in the context of doctrinal, theological, theological teaching. See, the word doctrine, we've made it a noun in and of itself as some special thing. The word literally means teaching. The doctrine of microphone and sound, the doctrine of monitors, the doctrine of uh, spe- spectacles, the doctrine of hair. The do- it's teaching. It just means teaching. But there was some error in the theology in Corinth. And there was some error in the application in Corinth. There was some error in the area of discipline in Corinth. A whole lot of sinful stuff going on. A whole lot of bad attitudes and unloving things. Which is why, you know, two chapters ago, Paul made it very clear what the greatest gift was, right? A whole lot of abuses of gifts and seeking out supernatural things rather than holding into the supernatural things that God has ordained for the church. So there's a lot of false teaching Some people in Corinth denied the resurrection of the dead completely. That was one. Others denied that then anybody else would be raised. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you deny that Christ, that that you deny the resurrection of the dead generally, then you have to deny that Jesus raised from the dead specifically. And if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead specifically, then we are really stupid people. Because we are creating churches and ministries and we're preaching and we're going across the world and people are dying for this stupid message what are we doing we are dumb that's what paul's art that's paul's argument and we ought to be pitied you see why it's important to listen to what people say concerning the person of christ and what he did and what he accomplished Because to take away part of what Christ did and accomplished is to deny who he is and who he says he is. And in doing so, whether it be anything small, the virgin birth. There's no resurrection if Mary is not God's ordained life bringer. There's no resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is a sinner and when he died, that's justice. He stayed dead. So the implication then is that we're in big trouble. Acts. You don't have to go to these. It's a lot. I'm telling you, it's a lot. Acts 23, 6 through 8. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, I don't have time to explain that, he cried out on the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. You notice that that's what got Paul in trouble. Not preaching the teachings of Jesus, not preaching the death of Jesus, but preaching the resurrection of Jesus. I and mean, when he said this, a dissension rose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, no spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. See, they were Gnostical. Non-Gnostical. I mean, they, they, they denied the, the, the spiritual side of things. They were anti-Gnostical. Second <laughs> Timothy 2. Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. My primary point in this morning's sermon is to help you understand that the resurrection is the settling of your soul, it really is the, the cornerstone of our hope. Not justification, not substitution. We like to pick out our pets, whatever hits us. You know, I don't know if you read poetry. I read poetry every day. I read poetry every day. And I have read some weird stuff. I subscribe to about a half a dozen weird things that like procure poems throughout the world's history. And some of that stuff I read is like, "This this guy was strange. I can't unread that. It's in there. What the world? There's a context, right? And so you know, you, you you read poetry, and sometimes it can be unsettling. Sometimes it can be amazing. The resurrection of the dead. I think should be the most settling theological thing that we talk about. As I read poetry, I'll pick out certain things. Like, that really spoke to me. That's where I was going with that. You're like, where did the poetry thing come from? do not matter. Where's it going? That's what matters. That really spoke to me. Oh, that, re-, and you share it with somebody, and they go, I don't get it. Because they don't know where your mind was and how you received it and what you were thinking. They don't know the context and your perception. They don't know your assumptions. And we do that with doctrine. We do that with theological pieces. And some of us, when we think of adoption because of the lack of parental love or affection, or maybe we didn't have a close family. and We think of God adopting us. See, that's part of the explanation of redemption. It's not a separate thing in redemption. It is redemption. And some people have really illustrated that as being powerful to them. So that's their thing when they talk about the gospel, this good story of Jesus. They're going to have God adopted them in Christ who died for them. Some people like to talk about grace and mercy and love and it's all true and it's all part of the gospel and you don't have to have it exhaustively and there's not a requirement in God's economy of proclaiming the gospel. There is not a minimum requirement. Everything that we say about the gospel must be true. And we do not get to decide what God has already established in the hearts and minds of others and his people when we may plant a seed just about the resurrection or just about justification or just about love or just about hope. Because to do so makes us God. That we know what needs to be said and done in the context of the sharing of the good story. And if we don't get all those pieces right, then God can't save. See how that's so backward. God has already saved. That God cannot grant faith without our perfect teaching. Balogna. And not even Oscar Mayer. That greasy old fat stuff that you have to gnaw with a saw to get out bologna. Some of you are like, that's my favorite. Well, you go ahead and eat that stuff. I'll eat the offals that are better presented. Chicken beaks and pig ears. I was. It's bologna. It is the power of God unto salvation. The work is finished. It's not the recitation. It's the work of Christ. People swerve from the truth. If Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, I mean, where we are right there, if he has not been raised, some people are saying that the resurrection has already happened, like in Thessalonica. So you're upsetting people. Stop it. I get that question a lot when I'm out in the world and around unchurched people. Oh, you preacher, hey, uh, you think Jesus is coming back in July? I hope so. Or August. I don't, I don't know. What's the Bible say? That we can't know. Oh, well, I watched 75 hours of this guy on YouTube last weekend. I'm sorry you did that. <laughs> you could have learned, like, Greek or Spanish in that kind of amount of time. That's what we do, Right? oh, you don't believe in a rapture? I don't believe what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches me not to bother myself with those things, especially not to bother you. I mean, it's a hobby horse, most definitely. As someone who has spent way too many hours in the Johannine literature, that's the writings of John, as a hobby, I've got a lot to say about the second coming. But I'm not going to usurp what is most important for that. We can talk about that another time. If you haven't been raised, if he hasn't been raised, then our faith is worthless. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says these words, For Christ did not send me to baptize. Christ didn't send me to assimilate and acclimate and publicly pronounce you into the church. Christ sent me to preach the gospel, the good report, and not with words of wisdom and theological fervor, not with argument, Implausible argument? Because if I do that, the cross has lost its power. See, the cross saves, the death of Christ saves, and the fact that that is true is that He's alive. For the word, the story of the cross is stupid to those who are dying in their sins. But to those who are being saved, that present reality it is the power of god 2nd timothy remember jesus christ paul says risen from the dead the offspring of david as as taught in my good report my good report my story the story i tell for which i am now suffering if i just shut my mouth about my story concerning christ i would not suffer I am bound with chains. I am being treated as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, he says. Therefore, I'm going to hold and endure everything that's happening to me. I'm not trying to get out of it. I'm not trying to get away from it. I'm not needing you to rescue me at all. Because I'm already a free man as I'm bound. I endure everything for the sake of Christ, people. For the elect. That they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. And so Paul is addressing these false teachings that the resurrection is done. And you might think, I've never heard that. You've heard it. You just haven't paid attention to it. And then verses 14 through 19 gives us the evidence. Paul's just not saying, hey, this is my take on it. This is my story. But who are you, Paul? Well, here's the story. Here's why I have this story. What is it that's about? I've heard this like four times in the last two weeks. Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. If you never lie, or if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. It's true. Well, did I tell him I was 200 pounds or 205 pounds? I had a million dollars or a million sixty. That I went to Florida, or was it Mississippi? Oh, I can't remember. And you get caught in your lies. The truth doesn't really escape you. Often, it can. The evidence of the resurrection, Paul affirms that Christ has indeed been raised. And he says the evidence is very clear in three different things. What does he say? The preaching of the apostles. Look at that. He has been raised. It's true, we preached it. The preaching of the apostles. The second thing he says is the faith of the believers. People have believed it. I'm going to give you a rollout text for this as well. And then Paul's own encounter as I read a, a minute ago, his own encounter with Christ. See, that was the defense that Paul had to walk into every room. Have you noticed that? I remember early in ministry, and you know, you spend, you spend all week studying a particular section of Scripture and because you've been asked to teach, and you get into this little circle, and you're in your 20s, and you're standing there, and, and you're, you know, you're 30 years younger than everybody else, and you don't know squat from squiddle. And they're introducing all these people, and all their accolades, and all the stuff they've accomplished. And you know, hey James, you got a bio? Yeah, I'm alive. I'm here. Got a Bible. Let's do it. Well, where'd you come from? Right, don't worry about it. You want a riddle? I mean, I'd give them the riddle. Some of you've heard, you know. How'd you end up here? How'd you end up out there? Doesn't matter. Let's just go. People like, well, here's the thing. You're, you're you're not an apostle, Paul Tippins. You don't have a an oppressive resume. What's your education? Where'd you go to school? Who was your mentor? Pimento? What? You know? I don't know. I've got those answers now, but not then. And Paul was the opposite. He had all those credentials. He had everything. He had all things. He'd worked hard his whole life to present himself as a Pharisee. Yet Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, he's like, here's the story. And what happened is is that when Paul would share his story generally and specifically by implication it would un it would tear up the story of all of his peers, right? It would destroy their credibility. Oh, you're not, you're not associated over here. Oh, you aren't connected over here. You aren't credentialed over here. Association, accreditation, credentials, these things are important in many aspects of life. They're important in the local church. Church membership has some sense of those things. Church discipline expects some sense of those things. But, Paul's like, here's my story. God raised him up, Acts 2. Losing the pangs of death, death because it was not possible for him to be held. Listen, Jesus Christ could not be held by death. And it wasn't a battle. The preaching of the apostles tell us that Jesus raised from the dead. 500 people saw him at one time. We don't have 500 individuals who over the last 30 years have stories of waking up somewhere they shouldn't be going, I must have seen Jesus. I mean, you know, these are 500 people together. Did you see that? Yeah, I was there. And the apostles were there. And people are believing this by the power of God because we're telling the story as he says, I delivered to you, and I read it earlier, verse 3 of 15. I delivered to you as a first important what I received. This is my experience that goes along with the prophets, goes along with the eyewitnesses, goes along with my own story. There's no conflict here. It is is true. I'm an apostle and I'm proving to you I'm I'm an apostle. And you don't have to believe I'm an apostle. I'm just going to do apostolic things in front of you and the sheep will hear it. We don't have to worry whether people believe our credibility or not. We don't have to worry whether people care about our credentials or not. We don't have to worry whether our studies... And our theologies are saying things in the manner everybody else expects them to. If God be true, let every man be a liar. You know what I didn't say there? Anything about accepting falsehoods. So shame on anyone who would indict me for that. That's what happens when we are not grounded And that was very purposeful. And if that creates a level of suspicion in us, we need to deal with that suspicion through proper meditation and prayer. Because that's an issue of anxiety that we need to express to the Father and to each other so that we can become at peace. The resurrection should tear that anxiety a new one. Is that okay to say? (laughs) Whatever that means. I probably said something ugly. Paul says the preaching of the apostles. In Acts chapter 4, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony. Not I was and now I am and I used to do this and that's not the testimony. The testimony is Christ. I see Christ, I saw Christ, I know Christ, Christ came to me, Christ. They were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. Acts 4.33. The preaching of the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. The faith of the believers, but the words, it was counted to him. This is Romans chapter 4. I don't want to get into Romans 4. Let's just listen to it as a proof text. We're not written for his sake alone. This is Abraham speaking. But also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and who was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. See, these are rich, meaty theological truths that every Christian needs to apprehend early in their relationship with the gospel. And if we do well, the church and the pulpit can teach these things in a manner congruent with the simplicity of the, of the transmission of the holy text. In other words, the simple way in which the Bible was written and given. That's what transmission means. And then we can all learn and grow together and be at peace in our souls. That's the, that's the banner of a church united. Peace. Not in every aspect of life because peace comes in the midst of great pain. Intimacy grows in the midst of great division. Because reconciliation brings intimacy. You can't have reconciliation without separation. So when it comes to the resurrection, we see that is the, re- that is the reconciliation of all the promises and all the practice. And the power of God together. Faith of believers is counted for our justification. Having been buried with him in baptism, Christ, uh, uh, Paul says to the church of Colossae, chapter 2, verse 12, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And Paul talks about his approach to Damascus the light from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Do you not see that God, through my story, through my testimony of the risen Christ, has opened your eyes, shown you salvation, and now you are growing in the knowledge of grace and you're loving one another and you're Multiplying the efforts of the gospel in your own lives. you not see the work? You know what Paul never said? By golly, your systematic theological volumes are perfect. Now every time he wrote, he was cleaning those up, wasn't he? To the saints. It's important that we perfect that. Clarify that. That is not our tether to joy. Jesus is. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our preaching is worthless. Why are we doing it? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Because when we preach the resurrection, just in itself, what does it do? why well there's a significance there's something we need to understand Christ is taught as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep those who have died Christ was raised and then we know we will be raised Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers we will be raised to eternal life we saw that in the Old Testament. They look for it in the Old Testament. So much so that in their own working, they, they created the theological idea of reincarnation. Israel. And they did it in some sense that where if a man died, then we could, his brother could take his wife and that first son would be the spirit in some sense of that child, of, that, of the brother that was dead. Or, and there's all sorts of ways that we see in the Jewish writings where they had these weird ideas. God's going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. Years later, years later, where's this son? Oh, I know what. You know, Sarah and Abraham get together and they figure it out. It's Hagar. That's how God's going to do it. And then Ishmael, and we see what that did and we see what it wasn't. And we see in the writing to the churches of Galatia what, what, what the reality of that is. Jesus says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown in a natural body, it is raised a supernatural body. There's a natural body. There's also a spiritual body. That's verses 42 through 44, the same chapter we're in. But the resurrection does some stuff. And let's close with this reality. We We could talk about this stuff for hours, but let's think about some things that the resurrection really gives us. And there are hundreds of these. Let me pick a few. The resurrection validates the fact that Christ paid for sins. He was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. This one that I hesitate to say because it sounds so weird to so many people suspicious ears the resurrection of Christ empowers our lives to be different why? because our hope is in His promise and His power as His people so therefore we can see the instructions of the New Testament and put them into practice not so we can prove we're Save, not so we can earn our salvation, not so we can grow to such a great thing that God says, look at there, almost Jesus, come on in, which is where a lot of Reformed type people go in the more contemporary model. But we can. We can be raised to live by faith, holding on to the fact that we will be perfected one day. It's not a process of perfection. It's a promise. Hold to it. The resurrection guarantees that we will live forever. We will be raised to life. We do have eternal life. Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says. He is the first fruit as evidence. The resurrection enables us to have victory over death. In what way? We will re-raise to life. The wages of sin is death. We are not going to be found guilty for our sins because Christ took our guilt. The guilt is over. The payment is made. The sentence has been executed. There's not even a trial. It's over. We have hope. Death must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And in this, the resurrection allows us to know and to understand and to access God in His presence and power. Come bold before the throne of what? I'm doing my best. Come bold before the throne of, I made a mess, but I fixed it. Come bold before the throne of, uh No, come bold before the throne of grace. 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 God the Father cannot count your sins against you, nor can he punish you, because he has already counted them and punished them in Christ. And Christ is alive, therefore it is satisfied. Who is there to condemn? How does Paul oh my gosh, y'all, how does Paul answer that? That's that's Romans eight. 34. Who is there to condemn? It was Christ that died, right? You see that? See the implication there? That's like a high yaha high kick to the head of the liars. Wow. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who is interceding for us. Now I got that one. I died for that one. I died for that one. Sins are forgiven. And this isn't how it works. You know God doesn't have to inform himself, through himself, by himself, about himself. I mean he's omnipotent and omniscient. He knows all things and he's all powerful. The resurrection proves the authority of Christ Jesus, the God-man, as God and Lord. God is highly exalted in Philippians 2. Verse 9. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every name, every knee would bow, shall bow, and then on heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the revelation of the reality of the glory of God the Father. And there's redundance when I say that. The resurrection gives the believer... A hope that is alive. It's not about this world, beloved. It's not about our accomplishments. It's not about our things. It's not about what we are looked at and seen as. And it is so hard. It is so hard sometimes to look at your life and you think, I have lived in this Christian circle and there's so much damage that has been done in these Christian circles. There's so much time that has been wasted. But God is sovereign in it. And God is purposed in it. For our good and for our joy. To the praise of His glory and His purposes and his power so that we can say we have a a living hope blessed as blessed be god the father of our lord jesus christ according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead first peter chapter one i've already said this but the scripture talks about having access to the holy of holies through the presence of god we enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, through His flesh. And since we have a great High priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the heart in full assurance of faith. I've already said this, but the resurrection gives us assurance of salvation. I've already said this, the resurrection undergirds the authority of the gospel story. But the last thing I want to say here is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the demonstration of the power and the tenacity of God's love for us. And I don't care who you are, I don't care what temperament you have, or how many things that you've got gone wrong in your life, or how hard you might be, or independent you might be, or how broken you might be, or codependent you might be, or how frustrating life is, or how cool it might feel, The love of God is necessary for you. And it's a necessary power for you. But God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. And if you know that text and you know how it's written... You know that Paul basically yells in the middle of all that. By grace you've been saved! You see? It's exciting. You can't read text like that. People jump out of their seats and fall. But beloved, I need to read it that way. My soul needs the assurance that what I am in my life is not about me. And in the end of it all, it's not about you either. And it doesn't matter what we really, really, really think would give us happiness because we've done that, haven't we? We've walked that road. We've stuck our toes in the soft waters of other areas. And they're always wanting. Those waters cool off and become stagnant. Those feasts fill us up and give us IBS. Those pursuits of strength and focus, they end in injury. <laughs> I mean, take any metaphor about the mundane of life you want. It's going to end unless we keep our focus on the love of Christ and the gospel of Christ and we look through that lens into every aspect. Then our suffering makes sense. Then our hope never ends fails because Jesus is alive. Let's pray. What is perishable is sown and what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Father, You have done these things in Jesus Christ, Your Son, who came and was sown in dishonor as perishable and in weakness and in natural body and was raised glorified as a promise that we too shall be raised with Him. Please, Father, I pray that which I need most, And don't even know what I need most. So your spirit praying for me is more important than my own prayers. As I pray for us as a spiritual family. As I pray for our households. Our marriages. Our children. Their marriages. Our grandchildren. Our friends. Our family. Our neighbors. Our enemies. Father, I pray that you would... Keep us from doubt, that you would hold us in joy. But we know what we are and we know where we are. And this world is always cooking the recipe of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and doubt. And that is okay. It is the natural sense in which we live as natural beings. So, Father, we need to look and long for that Supernatural, that divine work that you've promised us, Father. let these things and this and this body and this mind and this life remind us of the promise of the resurrection to overcome the problem of this present world. They will not leave, but oh God, one day we shall. And all these things shall be put under your feet in Jesus Christ, in whose name we praise you and in whose name we speak to your ears. Amen.